Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Liz Wiseman. Liz is a researcher and executive advisor who teaches leadership to organizations worldwide. She has written four books, Multipliers, The Multiplier Effect, Rookie Smarts, and Impact Players. She is also the CEO of the Wiseman Group, a leading research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley. And she's received the Top Achievement Award for Leadership from Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's leading 50 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. Liz has conducted significant research in leadership and talent development. She writes for Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and various other business and leadership journals. She's a former executive at Oracle, where she worked as vice president of Oracle University and the global leader of human resource development. She holds a bachelor's degree in business management and a master's in organizational behavior from Brigham Young University. Liz, welcome. Really glad that you were able to make time to do the show with me. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, what a fun topic. It's nice meeting you at the Thinkers 50 conference a, a few weeks ago. And I mentioned to you how valuable I found impact players. I know you've written other books as well, but maybe we'd start there. And I want to get into it a little bit more detail, but can you give our audience a brief overview of the premise of the book and who it's aimed at? Hmm. Well, the premise of the book is essentially that you can work really, really hard and still not have an impact. And that the people in the workplace who are really having an impact, making a difference, delivering work of extraordinary value, aren't necessarily any smarter than anyone else. They're not necessarily any more capable and they're not necessarily working harder, but the way that they approach some of the, I would call them the perennial challenges of the modern workplace, the way they approach them means that they're doing work that really is making a difference and they're having a very different work experience. I mean, in essence, they've kind of learned how to play the game, right? They gravitate toward the right work. They do it in the right way. They make sure people notice it, all of those things. Yeah, their work gets noticed. And and part of it is because of the type of work they're doing. Part of it is how they're doing it. But also they, you know, make sure their work gets noticed. Yeah. And what I appreciated, as I said to you when we met a few weeks ago, is that so many books get written for leaders, right? So many books get written for managers, but most books, they're really not written for individual contributors. And that's really who this is aimed at. It's valuable to you, almost irrespective of the level that you're at, but it probably has the the most value for somebody who's thinking about how do I kind of really start to get traction in the work world. And it can make a huge difference, as you point out in the book, just how valued these people are relative to their peers, which is, I think, what a lot of people aspire to, but don't always know how to achieve. Yeah. And the book is really 
written to the contributor side of what we do. And certainly it's for new to workforce, maybe people out of college in a new role and are trying to figure out how do I not just get stuck turning a crank, but how do I make a big difference in my work? And what are some good career strategies? But it's also written to managers at all levels who find themselves in the player coach seat on the team. Right. It's like there's part of what they do, which is the managerial role and the coach. But almost all of us have the contributor side, the work that we do, the presentations we give, the, the influence that comes from our personal contribution, not just from leading and coaching the team. Yeah. And even if you're a pure manager, right, you're not doing the player coach thing as you were describing a minute ago. I mean, thinking about there's a section in the book about how to have a high impact team and we'll get to that. But as a manager, if you can teach your team how to be higher impact players, like it benefits you, even if you're just purely managing people. Yeah, I haven't really found or run into a manager who has read the book and hasn't said, gee, how do I build a whole team of people who think and work this way? Now, I have run into plenty of people who've read the book and are mad that their manager wants them to think and work this way. Sometimes they write reviews on Amazon or such. But the managers are like, man, like this way of working and thinking, like it would be a dream team if I could a team where this was the native kind of mindset and approach. You can shape that probably by thinking about how do I hire for this, right? How do I hire for people who think this way? Because even if you just get a few of them on a team, can be a massive benefit for you. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a set based on all my research. I'm looking at what are the practices that differentiate, you know, good leaders from diminishing leaders, et cetera. But I'm also looking for the mindsets. What are the assumptions that we tend to bring? And some of those can be taught. Some can be taught quite easily, but there are a few that tend to be deeply ingrained that it behooves a leader or an organization to hire for people who are predisposed to think this way. So what are the differences you distinguish between contributors and impact players? What are the big differences between the two? Well, the contributors are people who are doing a fine job. You know, the contributor is not someone who is not performing, who is struggling. They're someone who is doing the job reasonably well, but often they're kind of just doing the job and turning a crank and they often experience work as tiring or Mm. frustrating or feeling to use the vernacular of the day like unseen and unheard whereas the impact player is someone who is delivering extraordinary value so these are the people on the team who are contributing at really high levels you know delivering work of extraordinary value but it's not just about the value they bring. It's about the value they create around them. There are people who raise the level of play on the team. Yeah. I want uh, Nick Saban, you know, mm-hmm. Alabama's coach, to give me his definition of an impact player. He goes, well, good players make plays and great players make really great plays consistently. But the impact players on a team, according to this legendary coach, he said, they're the people who not only make great plays consistently, they're the people who make the entire team better. Yeah. Because of the attitude they bring, the work ethic they bring, like Kobe Bryant, the Olympic redeem team who, you know, shows up going, you know what, we're here to win and we are going to work hard and we're going to not just take anything for granted. And soon everyone's down in the gym working out, kind of putting in just a little bit of extra and raising the sights. So that is yeah. what 
impact player is. And you have a stat that's in the book about how managers view these players in terms of, I'll say, the force multiplier that they put. It's something like three and a half times. Three and a half times when we ask managers to quantify the value being contributed by the impact players, it averaged to three and a half times greater than ordinary contributor and 10 times greater than what I called the under contributors in our study, which weren't dingalings, smart, capable, hardworking people who were just getting it wrong. Yeah. Like maybe working hard, but aiming at the wrong target greater than the under contributors and three and a half times greater than rock solid contributors. Yeah. And I think that is the promise of thinking and working this way is that you don't have to necessarily be any smarter or more capable or hardworking unless maybe you're on an Olympic basketball team, then it probably does show up as like yeah. a little extra time in the gym and such. But you can do work that is recognized as delivering greater value. Jared, the thing that was interesting was not how the managers talked about and quantified the value of the impact players. I was really fascinated by how the managers were talking about what I call the ordinary contributors or typical, because they said things like this. uh, Wow, this person did their job. They did their job well. Like I often heard them say, oh yeah, they were absolutely brilliant at their job. I'm like, well, (laughs) why is that ordinary? You know, things like they were loyal, they followed direction, they were good leaders, they took responsibility for things, they were focused, they carried their weight on teams. And really the profile created by the managers of the ordinary contributors was that these were really strong team players. These were sharp people, people that you would want to hire. And what I began to see, and this is where I thought the research got interesting, is what I began to see is that the ordinary contributor was stellar in ordinary times. Mm. Like when things were clear and straightforward and predictable, but once things started to get messy, once things started to get a little chaotic, ambiguous, you know, fraught with uncertainty, and things are moving, and you're in a very dynamic and volatile situation, that is where the ordinary contributors tended to fall short. And these were the situations that the impact players handled very differently. They thought about them differently. They acted very differently than the ordinary contributors. And that is where that three and a half X value differential comes from. Yeah. And I was thinking of 350% more, right? So it's really their four and a half times the value of an ordinary player to use your words from earlier, which is even more of a difference. So there's five attributes. First one that you talk about is doing the job that's needed right? And there's a few aspects to this that you make around seeing what's needed, doing a job that's needed, even if it may not be your own. Just be great if you could provide some color on on that one. Well, this was the first, and I think kind of it's the beginning of this value cycle that ensues for these. It's how they deal with the messy problems of the workplace. And by messy problems, I mean a problem that doesn't have a clear owner, where it's not this department's charter. It's not that department's charter either. It's not my job. It's not his job. It's just that messy work that sits in the middle. Like, right. It kind of flows through the the cracks of the org chart. Right. And what we find is that in these situations, the ordinary contributors are doing their job. You know, they're doing their part and their piece of that work, 
but the impact players are doing the job that's needed. So they are people who have a healthy level of disregard for their job description. Yeah. They don't see their job description as a box. And I just love the way, well, I love hate the way that we represent organization structure, like people in these boxes and, you know, names in boxes. They don't see their job description as a container, but more as a platform. Yeah. This isn't the end of what I can do. This is just sort of my base camp. This is where I hang out so that when something goes wrong, I'm in position to do something about it. And so they're really flexy with how they handle that. And it's not that they forsake their job. It's not like, oh, well, my job isn't to do my job. My job is to do sort of the high profile work. They're not abandoning their post. They're just willing to step beyond the confines of the job description. Essentially, they work where they're needed. Yeah. I mean, you use the acronym of like finding the win, right? What's important now? And it's a good way of remembering that you need to go where something needs to be done, right? Even if it's not what your box says you should do, you can do that without trampling other people because often what you're doing is you're stepping into that white space that really is falls between the cracks of the organization, as, as you were mentioning, and and sort of gluing it all together a little bit better maybe than what was otherwise happening. Yeah. And the way I like to think of it, again, it's this healthy disregard for org chart yeah. job descriptions. It's having some yeah. regard, understanding why they exist, but essentially organization structures and job descriptions are like our organizational tool for the problems of the past. Yeah. But it's a little bit like when you go through TSA security, when you're going through an airport, those processes are all put in place to solve like historical security issues, but they're not really good at catching future threats. And so it's paying attention, not just to, well, what am I expected to do per my job and what I was hired for this position or it's paying attention to what's going on in the organization, what's important and what's important now, which is often not written down, which means that we have to work paying attention to the signals and the smoke signals about what's happening. And essentially the impact player works like a heat seeking missile is they're looking for hot spots, what's hot. And so if you're new in your career, listening to this, if you want to be good at heat seeking, you're going to look for hot topics. Yeah. What are the executives talking about? What are they talking about when it's not on the agenda? Like what are the rubs, like hot spots, blisters when you're hiking Mm -hmm. or something that people are angsty about. Ah, man, I don't know why we can't seem to solve this problem. Like this keeps coming up over and over, like where people are frustrated and not frustrated at you. They're just mad at the air. Yeah. They're venting uh, hot projects, things that are getting funded, things that are getting called out in earnings calls. You're looking for hot buttons, like pet peeves and things that people really care about, but you're essentially working where there's heat. Yeah. And that's why you don't have to be smarter, more capable or harder working, but where you're working on things that are important, you're working where there's potential impact. Yeah. And a little bit of effort goes a really, really long way. You make the point in that part of the book about finding the things that are kind of the nuisances, right? That nobody can be bothered to fix the things that people using your words, I think, recreationally complain about, right? And I know we all have those in our workplaces. I guess I'm curious to get your view. I mean, a lot of times I'll see people who gravitate toward those kinds of things because they just want to fix some little problem 
but they don't get a lot of credit for it, right? They think they're gravitating toward the heat because it's one of those things that everybody does complain about, but there's not enough value in it that somebody actually bothered to fix it before. And I don't know, do you feel like that's a a net positive for an impact player or are they diverting their attention away from something that, that could otherwise be spent on something that's much more at the forefront? My view on this is probably going to sound a little hierarchical. Okay. It might rub some people the wrong way, but the difference is it's not about working on your pet peeves. It's about working on your stakeholders' pet peeves and senior leadership and shareholders. So it's not just saying, here's something that bothers me. I'm going to go and fix it. It's here's something that is preventing us from doing the work that matters. So one of the things we find, and this is where I have to admit, you know, I've, I've seen some people bristle to the ideas in the book and the bristle usually takes the form of, well, wait a minute, I want to work on what's important to me. And what I find is that the impact players work on what's important to their shareholders, their stakeholders, their their boss. And what I find is in the end or not too distant future, it gives them a lot of influence, a lot of credibility, a lot of power to then start calling some of those shots and work on what's important to them. But it doesn't start by pushing your own agenda. Influence tends to get built when we pay attention to the agenda of the organization, the agenda of our clients, our bosses, our colleagues, And then when we solve those problems, those ambient problems, our influence grows. Doesn't usually start with a self-orientation. It starts with an other orientation. And I have to admit, I've been surprised at how many people find that offensive. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. At the end of the day, maybe I'm sort of going to label myself as somebody who sits higher up in the organization that I work in, but you got hired to do a job for the company and its customers and its shareholders. It's not doing what you want to do, right? If you want to go into business for yourself, you get to do what you want to do. But you know, you have to think about, to your point, you have to have that other orientation. And I don't know, I don't encounter the, I want to do what I want to do so much in my line of work, but I'm sure it's out there. It's just surprising to me, actually, that you feel like people bristle at that point, the idea that they got paid to do a job for a company that's paying them. Yes, but it is becoming more of a norm. I think it's the years of programming people have heard, which is, hey, look out for number one and, you know, pursue your passion, figure out what you're passionate about and go do it. And the world is your oyster. Like if Mm. you know what you're passionate about, the world will open up and create a path for you. And that can work. But I think it's a little bit like I want to be an NBA superstar. Like that can work for some. But I think for most people, that influence and credibility and impact comes when we first figure out what is happening around us, when we set our sights on others, when we take jobs and decide our job is to serve and to solve problems for the people around us, we actually build a lot more personal credibility and influence. I have been surprised by this. Yeah. Next one in the book is stepping up and stepping back. What do you mean by both? How can you actually do both? if you're an impact player. Yeah, so this distinction is how impact players handle unclear roles. And I think we've all been in that situation where roles are unclear and we don't know who's in charge and organization is matrixed and collaborative and you've got teams that kind of rapidly assemble and disassemble. 
and you drop into a meeting and there's, I don't know, four or five other people in that meeting, but you're not entirely sure who's in charge of the meeting or who's really leading this initiative. You just find yourself with this collection of people looking around, trying to figure out who's the boss. And what we find is that in these situations where roles are ill-defined or unclear or fluid, that the ordinary contributor tends to look upward for clarity or they tend to wait for direction. And, you know, we hear this all the time in organizations. Well, we can't move forward because we need role clarity. Like someone above them is going to kind of provide that clarity. But we find in these situations where there is a leadership vacuum, the impact players are very quick to fill that vacuum. But they're not these kinds of collaborators or leaders who have to always be in charge. And you know what it's like to work with that person, like the person Mm -hmm. who, okay, we don't know who's in charge. I'll be in charge. I'll be in charge of that. I want to lead that. We tend to mistrust those folks. What we find is that Mm -hmm. they're quick to step up and take charge. They're not waiting for someone to appoint them as the leader or anoint them, give them formal authority. They just take charge. It might be as simple as a meeting without a clear leader where they might say, who's in charge? We don't know. I'm willing to lead this conversation. Would it be helpful if I frame this issue and kind of lead us through this? And so they step into that void and they provide leadership, but they don't need to stay in the lead role or always be in the lead role. We find that when that service is rendered, they tend to step back and they follow others with the same energy, commitment, verb that they led others. So they're they're people who move easily in and out of this leadership role. And I liken it to the way of a flock of birds migrates together in that V formation. It's very efficient. And it's not that the alpha bird is always up at that point of that V doing the harder work, you know, creating that efficiency and that drag, you know, like flock is a role that rotates. I think this is really important. One is it builds trust. Like if you're the person who always has to be the boss, people get very suspicious. And people who are constantly taking on that leadership role end up exhausted and they erode trust in their colleagues. And then they're exhausted and kind of in a diminished state. Meanwhile, other people are constantly following. They're exhausted because they're underutilized. And what this does is it shares that load. So it creates both rest for everyone, but also periods of deep engagement. And it allows organizations to have more agility, more vitality. You know, Mm. more and more, the role of leader is is not a position in an organization. It is a role and it's a temporary role. It's also a mindset, right? I mean, the idea that anybody can be a leader. You have to figure out how to lead from the seat you're in. Yeah, and you take turns very much like a Peloton, the way kind of take turns up in the lead doing the hard work and you draft off your colleagues and they're creating an easier path for you. Speaking of easier path, I mean, there's a couple others in here, but the last of the five is about making work light. Maybe this comes back to how you sort of make the team better. One of the ways to do that is to kind of create the tone, help set the tone for the team. So help explain some of the things that these impact players are doing in in making the work light for themselves and for their, their teams. Yeah. And it is exactly that. They make work light for their teams and for themselves. And this is how the impact players deal with the unrelenting demands where work gets really hard. And essentially the difference is that the ordinary contributor, they carry their weight, but they often make work harder than it has to be. 
And sometimes working with them comes with a bit of a tax. And we all know this, like the smart, talented coworker who gets the job done, but you just know it's going to be a little bit painful. Like, oh, that 10 minute conversation is going to turn into a 30 minute conversation. And then I'm going to have to listen to them complain about how much they hate purchasing or whatever it is. We find that the impact players are, I just heard it over and over for managers like, like, oh, like the way they work is kind of, they're easy to work with. They're delightful to work with. They're joyful. I think there's a lot of ways that you can make work light. Now, one way is you can be a helping hand. Hey, you know what? It looks like you're overloaded. Can I offer to help? which is always appreciated, but that's not very scalable. Like that's how we're making work light. We're going to create a burden for ourselves. But they also are making work light because they're just easy to work with. No drama, no quality. They channel their energy where it's going to have impact and they don't drag other people into that. They're sort of low maintenance. A little bit of it goes a really long way. And I think the biggest way this happens is they just bring a sense of ease, a joyfulness, like they bring laughter and they make hard work just feel lighter because they're having fun while they're doing it. Yeah. I remember uh, having a conversation with a boss who subscribed to a different coach, the Bill Parcells School of Coaching. If you were listening, he'll immediately recognize himself. And I said, you know, we're busting our asses right now. Like we need to have more fun as a team. He comes into the next team meeting and says, JR says we need to have more fun. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, we got all this stuff to do. I mean, it was like completely discounted. <laughs> it was just so antithetical to him. And that's where I was kind of coming from. It's like, we got this really hard problem to solve. Like, the least we can do is have a little bit of fun kind of working through it. And he just completely didn't get it. Think about this, JR, is if you have an orientation, which is the harder the work, the more fun it needs to be. Like, yeah. we towards things that are fun. So if you're setting that tone on a team and can be anything from like maybe a twee sort of attitude of like whistle while you work, like let's just kind of be cheerful about it. The other is to just laugh at the hard problems, laugh off your mistakes, not mock your colleagues, but make light of the mistakes you make, the foibles, the more fun you have, that's going to draw people to hard problems. Like, oh yeah, this is hard. But instead of avoiding it, this is where we're actually going to be laughing. This is going to be fun. This is where people are going to show up doing crazy things. And I think that's part of how it raises the level of play on teams. Yeah. Coming back to, you've described these five criteria in the book, and then you get into sort of describing how do you become an impact player, right? So if I'm somebody who says, okay, I'm bought in, I get it. I need to change my behaviors. Like, where would you counsel them to start? in terms of kind of getting themselves on this path? First of all, I would clarify that in our study, we looked at people who managers described as ordinary contributors or impact players. But my guess, Mm -hmm. everyone listening is already ahead of me in this. And they have figured out that this really isn't about types of people. This is about ways of thinking. Mm. Boy, I can tell you phases of my career where I was very much an impact player. But I can also tell you about phases or weeks or bad days that I had where I'm stuck in this contributor mentality. Yeah. One of them was um, I was in a meeting with Larry Ellison, the founder and CEO of Oracle, who is a very um, smart and kind of intimidating character. And we were going through so much change. And I'm just like numb at this point to all of this change. And I remember saying something like, man, Larry, at this point, 
why don't you just hire a monkey to do my job? Because I feel like I'm turning a crank. And he's like, what are you talking about? But I was just like, I felt like beleaguered, just like tired. Like I was just going through the motions. Yeah. I was absolutely stuck in this contributor mentality. And I can tell you about conversations I had with Larry Ellison where I'm thinking like, I've got to protect the past and like do what's like easy. And whereas he's like pulling me to think in very different ways. But I can also tell you about times where I'm like, man, I was out there doing what was needed, stepping up, leading, and work was joyful in that state. And work was miserable. Like I'm like monkey turning a crank in the other state. So it's, these are about mindsets that we tend to get pulled in out of. And maybe if you want to have more impact at work, I would start by asking yourself, like, what mode am I working in right now? Yeah. And why? What has pulled me here? If you are feeling like you might be stuck a little bit, a place that I would start with would be the core mindset of players and people working in this mode is to see uncertainty and ambiguity as an opportunity rather than a threat to put on what I call in the book, the opportunity goggles that impact players seem to wear. And yeah. find that one of the most fundamental differences is when things look messy and uncertain and ambiguous, the impact players tended to move toward those. Right. And ordinary contributors tended to move away from it. And it has everything to do with how we see how we see that uncertainty. Do we see it as a threat to my productivity, a threat to my job? Is this an annoyance, uh, you know, a, a reason to look up? Or do you see kind of that white space and that noise and that chaos is actually a chance to deliver value, a chance to demonstrate leadership, a chance to reinvent it and do it a different way, a chance to build new capabilities? You know, does that like unrelenting demand feel like a chance to build cohesion and belonging on a team. Yeah. And that's probably where I would start is to when we find ourselves frustrated by ambiguity. To yeah. just, I wonder what this situation looks like if I were put to put on the opportunity goggles. How is this an opportunity for me to advance my career in some ways? How is it an opportunity for me to show that I can do more than maybe people have me pegged to be able to do? Yeah, interesting. I mean, your point about it being kind of a way of thinking, you described it. I've certainly had points in my life where I felt like I'm clicking, I'm firing on all cylinders right now. And I've had other periods where my head wasn't in the right place, or maybe the environment just wasn't right. I mean, you know, not to overuse the sports analogy, but you think about like star players who get traded or signed as a free agent by some other team. And it's like, they don't recreate the glory that they had in their prior environment. And I mean, the talent's clearly there, right? The physical capabilities there, but something's missing for them, right? And they don't work out for one reason or another. And if that can happen to professional athletes, it can certainly happen to the mere mortals that the rest of us are. And you've got to, I think, kind of check with yourself and see like, am I kind of falling into one of those period? And why is it? Why is it? And I just not too long ago finished the Beckham yeah. series. Yeah. I think it's when he, he goes from Manchester to Real Madrid. Is it that? Right, right. He's sitting on the bench. And that's this combination of him and the mental game he's bringing. Yeah. And some of the distractions that he's dealing with. And also like learning a new coaching system. And yeah, whether we can show up and play big in our right. role 
it's a function of the mindsets we bring. It's a function of the practices that we bring to our work, the way we show up, but it's also a function of the way our leaders show up. That was a whole different piece of research and book for me. You know, like, why is it some leaders seem to diminish intelligence and capability and impact Mm. where other leaders seem to amplify it? So, you know, kind of like if you want a team of impact players, most important thing you can do is be the kind of coach an impact player would work for, play for. Yeah, my secret hope, by the way, is that I'll get you to come back at some point later and, and do a follow-on discussion about multipliers, which, as you say, is more kind of geared toward that group of person or that level of person. Switching gears, let's talk a little bit about the work of your firm. You've mentioned some of the research that you did in, in writing this book. You lead, as I guess I best understand it, a workplace-focused R&D group. Is that a fair way of describing what you do? Yeah, we are sort of a leadership lab and research, uh, write, and teach on how to create organizations where people can contribute at their fullest. That's really a theme across all of my work and our firm's work. And what are the types of services that you provide and the types of firms that you work with? The value of the work that I do is probably, I think the real value is the stuff that you wouldn't call a service, like no one hires you or pays you to do it. And that's the research. So we take on big questions in the workplace, like why is it that some leaders seem to amplify intelligence and other shut it down? Why are some people stuck going through the motions while others are having massive influence? So we do that research, the analysis of that, and then write books. And then the rest of what we do is really based on what we learn in those research projects and ideas that we share in the books. And so it's people hire us to maybe deliver a keynote speech or a seminar or a workshop or assess their workforce. That's kind of the downstream stuff of what we do, but it only exists because we're willing to go in and do these multi-year research projects. I know you mentioned Oracle and I know you worked there for a number of years in HR and leadership development, but what was it that sort of led you ultimately to start the firm you're running now? Well, I was at Oracle for 17 years and loved it. I I loved working there. And I think the reason I loved it is because in 17 years, probably for 16 and a half of those, I never had a job I was qualified for. (laughs) Every job was a stretch. Yeah. In fact, one of my first jobs, I was thrown into management at a very young age. And I'm at some cocktail party with a bunch of Oracle clients. And I'm very, very young and I'm running... Oracle University, which is now a global operation. And my boss introduced me to a client, you know, like a proper mature executive, you know, with gray hair and looking like an executive. He introduced me and said, this is Liz. She runs, you know, the university for us, blah, blah. And guy did like a noticeable flinch. Like he was shocked that they had a child like in this big responsibility. And Bob said, oh yeah, Liz isn't particularly well qualified for her job, but she's killing it or like something like that. And I said, yeah. Bob, first of all, thanks for the air cover. (laughs) But I said, Bob, like, I don't ever want a job I'm qualified for because there would be nothing to learn. And, And it was like, he kind of said, like, wish granted. And for the next dozen plus years, I'm being given these jobs that are so much bigger than my capability. Every one of them, I'm thinking, are these people crazy? Do we lack like adult supervision? Why are we putting the children in charge? Like, why am I having such big responsibility when I feel so underprepared for these? And this isn't imposter syndrome. I mean, I was legit underqualified for every one of these roles. 
And then I get to a point where I now kind of know what I'm doing. And honestly, work felt miserable. I think that was kind of back to where I felt like I was turning a crank. And I found that I was at my best when I was new and yeah. a little bit underqualified and where it was a stretch and a real reach. And so I left Oracle, not because I didn't like the organization, didn't like the people I worked with. It was a great job. But I left to go experience that thrill of bigger challenges. And that's what led me to the research. In some ways, I went to go do something that I felt half qualified to do. Mm. There was a whole lot I still needed to learn. And that's my happy place. And that's how I ended up doing executive coaching and researching and writing. And the first book I wrote, you know, as I'm signing the contract with the publisher, Harper Collins, Harper Business Imprint. I'm like, oh, gee, I wonder if they know I've never really written anything before other than this writing, like this book proposal and this chapter I wrote for them. Right, right. And so that was a stretch. And that's what I really loved in my corporate life. Sounds like you liked it in your corporate life as well. I mean, they talk about like this Goldilocks zone, right? Like you're either sort of in between boredom and complete discomfort. There's a zone of that works for you, right? And it sounds like your zone is probably further toward that, what other people would view as discomfort, right? In terms of the level of stretch. I mean, you essentially had a number of roles, it sounds like that you played at Oracle where you, you were deliberately stretching yourself, right? And seeking out those kind of opportunities. Absolutely. But I also say I'm as lazy as anyone else. Like I like it when I get good at something and I don't have to think too hard. Like I enjoy that as well. So it's not like I want all stretch, but there was a little piece of research that I did. It was from another book project called Rookie Smart, where we asked about a thousand professionals across different industries, a bunch of questions, including what's the degree of challenge in your work right now? And then in another question that we then correlated with that first question was, how satisfied are you in your job and your work? And what we found was this near perfect linear correlation between the two. Like it's a little wobbly at the ends, but then as challenge level goes up, so does our job satisfaction. And when challenge level is low, so is our job satisfaction. So I think this is true for most everyone, barring some life circumstances that make it really difficult to sign up for stretch responsibilities. But for the most part, getting that just a nice degree of stretch exactly, is our happy place. And probably very similar to like working out, like there's no stretch, which creates injury. And then there's overstretching, which creates injury. But that like nice, consistent, gentle stretch hmm. tends to feel pretty good. That was This is your first time entrepreneurial experience. Were you a natural or did you learn a lot of hard lessons along the way? if you look at the profile of entrepreneurs, there's a few things that I probably share in that. One is I'm like, I'm pretty good. I'm an incremental learner. Like, Mm. let's just take a bite out of this, figure out how to do this. And I'm not a big visionary. I don't share that with entrepreneurs like, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to go build something huge and I'm going to go get venture money. In fact, I went in to meet with someone at uh, Kleiner Perkins, my former boss at Oracle, who was venture capitalist. And I tell him about what I'm doing. And he's like, at the end of the conversation, he says, Liz, I think you're the only person who's been in my office who hasn't asked for money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm much more bootstrap, incremental, incremental success rather than like think big and bold. But I definitely think like lean. What's the viable product and how do we try something and experiment and 
and get some feedback. That's pretty natural for me. I'm probably a pretty natural risk mitigator, not a big risk taker. How do we get the data and test things out so that we know we're on the right track rather than like just wing for the fences? But you find yeah. that that's a pro, you know, part of the entrepreneur profile. And my focus has always been on how do we have really big impact, but stay small. I was going to, I was speaking at an event at the Harvard Business School and the person who was speaking along with me was the CEO, founder CEO of a, a unicorn tech company. And when it was my turn to speak, I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? <laughs> he, he's leading a unicorn. I'm more like my little pony. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aaron was kind of building this big organization and our ambition has always been, how do we stay small as an organization, but have a really big impact, small footprint, yeah. big impact. I mean, you've been doing this for a while now. Is that still sort of the mantra that you're thinking about as you think about what the next few years look like for you? Yeah, small but mighty. And we, my colleagues and I have been pretty thoughtful in how do we grow through partnerships and working with companies, like rather than try to do it all ourselves and take all of the stress that comes from building something big and having a building with like the company's name on it to say, you know what, let's be good at what we do, which is research teaching and let's partner with organizations that have worldwide presence who can replicate and scale and sell and market and do all those things that we don't particularly do well. If you think back to the early part of your career, what do you wish somebody had told you then that you know now? I don't know that I would change anything about it. Yeah, I feel like I got the advice when I needed it. What is that saying that like when the student is ready, the teacher appears? Mm -hmm. I think I got like advice just in time and right when I needed it, like early in my career where I was sort of pushing to do the kind of work I wanted to do. And I wanted to teach leadership and I had a, a boss's boss kind of say to me, you know, Liz, that's great that that's what you want to do. And we think you're terrific and everything, but that's not the problem your boss is trying to solve. Right. She's got a very different problem. She doesn't need to teach people how to be good leaders. We are hiring thousands of people every year and we need to teach them the Oracle tech stack. And she's mm-hmm. not sure how to do that. And so what would be great is if you could help her solve that problem. And for me, it was just this profound advice and a way to reorient my career rather than gunning for like, here's what I want to do. And I've got to find people who will like give me a chance to do what I want. What he was saying is like, look around you mm. and see what needs to be done and make yeah. useful. Yeah. Comes back to the first of your five things in your book, right? Doing the job that's needed. Yeah. And I think that really shaped me. And, you know, we are kind of um, at the eve of the American Thanksgiving holiday gathering. And it's the difference of like, you know, if you're hosting a big gathering and you've been preparing for this, there's always that last minute moment. And you think about like someone who arrives and says, Hey, I have this idea. Like, I think we should do this and we should play this game. And and you're like, Oh, wow. Like you're really throwing me right now. And now I've got to like do what I needed to do to host this party and entertain your idea and everything versus the person who shows up and doesn't just come into the kitchen and say, okay, give me a job. What needs to be done? They look around, they say, you know what? Do you need help setting chairs? Can I 
at the table? Can I fill the water glasses for you? They're paying attention and they're providing service. And I think that was the guidance I got early in my career. Yeah. I did not bring native. I, I had a selfish orientation. What do I want to do? Yeah. Completely changed my career trajectory when I decided to make myself useful. Exactly. Any final words of wisdom? I guess there's sort of two things that I've learned over all the research I've done that maybe I'll share is what I've learned studying some of the best leaders, some of the worst leaders, looking at people with a lot of influence, those who are struggling, is that people across all different kinds of industries, across different continents and cultures, that people come to work not wanting to do the minimum, but wanting to be utilized, wanting to have their talent and insights and intellect deeply utilized. Like people are wired for challenge. People are wired for contribution and people are wired for impact. And when we can create that environment, work becomes exhilarating, yeah, not exhausting. And if you want to be someone who has a lot of influence, we've talked about a few of those things, but you know, really good strategy is to be someone who not only do you bring your best to your work, but to be someone that other people do their best work around will create impact for you. It'll create reward for you and it'll create more opportunities than you could possibly manage. Good advice on which to close. Thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our audience will find a lot of value in the discussion and if they so choose in your book. Well, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a great Thanksgiving. I want to thank Liz for joining me today to cover one of her best-selling books, Impact Players, as well as the work of her firm and some lessons from her broader career journey. If we're lucky, we'll get Liz back at some point to discuss her equally popular book, Multipliers. In the meantime, if you'd like to make the most of your career, you can visit pathwise.io and become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.